With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Truth and Justice Season 14 Reply Brief. Today's episode is in reply to The Prosecutor's Part 12, which means that we only have two more episodes to go. And just like last week, Brett and Alice aren't really bringing up anything new in this one. So at this point, we've reached the point in their series where there's some overlap between their coverage of Adnan's case and my Reply Brief series. What I mean is that when they created this episode, I was already responding to a lot of their BS that they were putting out in the series. I had done a couple episodes on the main feed where I addressed a few things, and I was talking about it on social media. Also, Colin Miller was tweeting case materials and facts at them. So in this episode, there's a combination of them doing a little bit of damage control and then really digging into, again, Asia McLean's involvement in the case as well as a drawn-out attempt to salvage their use of the cell phone evidence. They spent over an hour trying to explain all this stuff away, and it'll take me probably less than half that amount of time to set the record straight here. We've already been over the facts surrounding these issues in detail, and I just don't see any need to grind through them all again. So let's get started, and we'll keep this one brief. First up, after Brett and Alice released their episode on Asia and her alibi letters, they got quite a bit of pushback on their analysis. Namely, their citing of the police notes from an interview with Juwan Gordon. Now, like I said, we've been through all this before back in Part 6 and 6.5, so I'll just quickly remind you that in the interview notes, it says that Juwan said that Adnan had asked a girl to type up a letter for him, and the note says Asia with a question mark. So, in their part six, this was presented as proof that Adnan actually mailed the alibi letter to Asia to have her type it up and then send it back to him. And I'm sure you all remember that I was pretty pissed about them saying that 100% what happened is that Asia had been lying all these years, both in her testimony on the subject and in her affidavits. And you probably also remember that Asia herself wasn't particularly thrilled about the accusation either. It was pointed out to Brett and Alice by a lot of people that it was let's say, less than honest, to quote the note from Juwan's interview, but not even mention the fact that he later swore out an affidavit explaining what he had really said in that interview. In no uncertain terms, he said that he was absolutely not talking about Adnan trying to get anyone to create an alibi for him, but instead he was talking about Adnan asking people to write character letters for him. So now, jump to part 12, where they're doing the damage control. As it turns out, they didn't mention Juwan's affidavit because apparently he committed perjury too. 
Just like with Asia, they kind of go back and forth between Juwan is misremembering or he's lying. But they land on lying. They say that since he was writing the affidavit for the defense, he's obviously going to try to present things in a way that's favorable for Adnan. And look, there's not much I can do with this. Asia wrote the letters and swore under oath over and over and over again that she was the author and what she wrote in the letters is what she believes to be the truth. They dismiss that and accuse her of being part of an elaborate plot to deceive the police, even though the police would not have access to those letters. They just go to Adnan's lawyer. And then Juan swears under penalty of perjury that he doesn't know anything about Adnan trying to do anything nefarious or about having anyone write an alibi letter. He just mentioned to Juwan that he was asking people to type up character letters for him. And again, that's dismissed. Juwan must also be lying. And I don't know what to do with that. If the basis of your theory is that you just believe that he's lying, then I can't do anything to change your mind other than to say that he has no reason to lie and neither does Asia. But a few times in this episode, Brett and Alice do reveal their bias, and this is one of those examples. It's very apparent that they have already predetermined that Adnan wrote the letter for Asia and that Juwan is lying now, and he actually knew that's what Adnan was up to back in 1999. And the reason they say that it's so apparent is because their argument completely revolves around those two things as being true, which creates this sort of weird circular argument. That's kind of confusing, but let me break it down. So the evidence they use to try to discredit Juwan is that Asia wrote her second letter to Adnan after he had only been in jail for like a day and a half. And there wouldn't be time for him to get her first letter and write a letter back to her in time for her to write the second letter dated March 2nd. So the flaw in the logic is that in an attempt to prove that Adnan wrote the second letter for Asia and she backdated it and sent it back to him, they say that letter couldn't be a result of a request for a character letter because it was sent too soon. So what they're saying is that the letter Juwan was talking about has to be Asia's second letter, and therefore we know that Adnan wasn't innocently asking for a character letter. But this is how logic actually works. If March 2nd was too soon for Asia's second letter to be Adnan requesting a character letter, then Juwan was talking about something else entirely just like he said he was. It's such a weird position, it's actually difficult for me to articulate how silly it is. And truthfully, I don't feel like I'm doing a very good job. I feel like I'm making it even more confusing, so sorry about that. Essentially, it boils down to this. The question that we're debating is whether or not Adnan wrote that second letter. And their evidence to prove that he did is that we know Adnan wrote the second letter. I hope that makes sense because I have to kind of explain it again in a few minutes when we get into the cell records. So I'll just put an end to the Juwan discussion with this. If we believe that neither Asia or Juwan are risking perjury charges by lying about this, then here's how this went down. Adnan gets two letters from Asia a day apart saying that she remembers seeing him in the library. He gives those letters to his attorney. His attorney tells him he's going to need people to write character letters for him. He talks to Juwan and asks him and another friend if they'll write character letters, and he tells Juwan that this girl Asia had sent letters to him, so he might ask her to type up a character letter as well. That's it. Based on the sworn witness statements by people with nothing to gain from any of this, that's what happened. So, as far as I'm concerned, that's enough about Juwan. In their next segment, they circle back to Asia again. 
This is now the third episode where they've been hammering away at Asia. This time, they're talking about her testimony at the 2016 PCR hearing. And once again, they're completely misrepresenting how the testimony actually went. I have the transcripts up on our website if you want to read them in their entirety. But here, I'm just going to touch on one thing and we're going to move on. I think we've spent plenty of time on Asia already. In the prosecutor's episode, they tell you that Asia was basically ripped to pieces on the witness stand. That the prosecutor, Thiru Vignaraja, had confronted her with all these issues that they themselves had raised back in Part 6 about that second letter. How did Asia know to write central booking? How did she know that's where Adnan was? How did she know Hay was found buried in a shallow grave in Leakin Park? How did she know what time Adnan was arrested? Vignaraja's intent was to claim that all that information had to come from Adnan himself, and therefore it must be Adnan that actually wrote that second letter. And Brett and Alice say that Asia didn't have any answers for any of those questions when she was on the stand. But what they didn't tell you was that on redirect, Adnan's attorney produced two articles from the Baltimore Sun. And all of those super secret elements that must have come from Adnan were direct quotes from those articles. Hay was found buried in a shallow grave in Leakin Park. Adnan was at Central Booking. He was arrested in his home at 6 a.m. It was all in the newspaper, all of it. Asia did have answers to all of those questions. There was no big gotcha by the prosecution like they're representing. In fact, I was sitting there watching it happen, and if anything, Vignaraja ended up looking like an idiot. There was audible laughing coming from the crowd in the courtroom when Adnan's attorney was sarcastically asking Asia if, I don't know, maybe she got this secret information from the quotes from the very public newspapers. Vignaraja was trying to be some kind of TV lawyer bully, and it blew up in his face. Read the transcripts for yourself. He was awful to Asia on the stand. At one point during redirect, she pointed out that she actually had her lawyer reach out to Vignaraja before the hearing so that he could ask her any questions he wanted to before she testified. So then, on recross, Vignaraja gets up and he has just one question for her. And sadly, you can't get the full tone of it from the transcript. But he stood up and he said, Isn't it true that after the last prosecutor had a conversation with you, you accused him of lying. Referring to, of course, when Kevin Urick told Asia not to get involved and then he himself testified that she had been pressured by Adnan's family and that she had lied in the affidavit. And when you read it, it does read kind of nasty in the transcript, but I can tell you that it was even worse in person. Vignaraja thought he was so tough and he just looked like a bully and a dimwit. But anyway, here's my final word on Asia. First and foremost, Asia isn't really an alibi, and it really doesn't matter if she saw Adnan that day or not. It only mattered when compared to the state's timeline at trial, where the Come Get Me call came at 2.36, which we know is impossible. Asia says she saw Adnan after school for a few minutes until she left at 2.40. And since we have reports of Hay still being at the school up till close to 3 o'clock, Asia alone doesn't rule Adnan out as a suspect. So this is a whole lot to do about nothing. Secondly, I absolutely believe that Asia believes that the day she saw Adnan in the library was the day Hay was killed. She's not lying. Adnan didn't write that letter. The entire premise is laughable. So the question is, did she have the right day? In my opinion, yeah, she probably does. She has some pretty solid anchors. She remembers the storm coming in late that night. and She remembers school was canceled for the next two days. 
There's some question about the storm icing her in at her boyfriend's house because the storm didn't actually start until like 2 a.m. It was very possible that when she was ready to come home late that night and there was a big storm predicted that her parents told her just to stay there just to be safe. But there is enough of a question there for me to leave it at a probably rather than hold a strong belief that she absolutely had the right day. But again, it doesn't really matter because it's not really Asia that alibis Adnan. It's Becky, Debbie, Inez, the letter from the counseling office, and Coach Sai. That's Adnan's alibi. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Cell phone evidence. This is the second episode in a row where they're trying to preserve those incoming Leakin Park pings. And that's because they have to have them in order to lend some credibility to some version of Jay's story. So once again, they circle back to the PCR hearing where the reliability of the incoming calls were litigated in front of a judge. And honestly, I just want to end the episode right here. This is such a waste of time. All that needs to be said is scoreboard. Like I said last week, we don't need to argue about who did it better at the PCR hearing. There was a judge there. He listened to both experts and he gave a ruling. Adnan's conviction was overturned because he did not receive a fair trial. Incoming calls were used to determine his location and to corroborate Jay's story when those calls were not reliable for location. Period. And I know I've been saying this a lot in these last couple of weeks, but again, it doesn't matter at all. And I'll explain why here in just a few minutes. But first, let me just correct the record on a few things. Brett and Alice spend quite a bit of time talking about how Adnan's defense team got caught trying to do something dishonest during the hearing while cross-examining the state's expert. So what they did is they presented him with a document with so much data cut off from it that he couldn't answer simple questions about the location data. That actually happened. But the way that Brett and Alice presented it is that the defense was trying to pull a fast one on the expert trying to get him to commit to an opinion based on faulty evidence. But that is not at all what Justin Brown was doing. 
he got exactly what he wanted to out of this strategy, despite Brett Nallis saying that he got caught and had to do some backtrack or pivot. So what really happened was Justin was trying to make the point that the state withheld key evidence from the defense at the time of trial. And of course, the state is saying that Gutierrez had everything she needed to understand the cell data. She'd been given some cell records, but not the full records. And because of that, she did not have the information that she needed to fully understand it. So, what Justin did was present Fitzgerald, the state's expert, with the exact document that the state had provided to Gutierrez. And he asked him to use that document to determine locations and times. And Fitzgerald had an absolute fit on the stand. He was yelling at the defense, accusing them of trying to trick him. He said they damn well knew that they couldn't make any determination from that document. It was really a sight to see. It was absolute pandemonium in the courtroom. The witness berating the lawyer, the prosecutor yelling at Justin and arguing with the judge, it went on for what seemed like forever. And then eventually Justin revealed what he was doing. The big reveal was that he didn't accidentally give him a document without all the necessary data to review. He didn't redact the data. But that, in fact, was the actual document that the state had given to Gutierrez. It was brilliant. So imagine you're the state. And you're arguing that the defense at trial had everything they needed to understand the cell data. And then your expert is presented unknowingly with the exact documents in question. And he has an absolute meltdown. How dare you give me this incomplete document and ask me for an opinion? It was hilarious. He thought he caught them trying to pull one over on him. When in fact, what he did was prove that Yurik was trying to pull one over on Gutierrez. Now, whether this was an ethical move or a proper one, I can't answer that. I'm not a lawyer. But as a layman watching, like a juror might be, the point was made crystal clear. Moving on, Brett and Alice once again pretend that no one, not even the experts, understood the science as to why you can't use incoming calls for location. And again, that's not true. The basic difference between incoming calls and outgoing calls is this. For an outgoing call, your phone is searching for a tower, so it's looking from the phone outward. But on an incoming call, it's the other way around. The network is now looking for the phone. And as was testified to, that actually makes it more likely that the initial connecting tower was closer to the caller rather than the person receiving the call, particularly if they're both using the same network. Now, there's a slightly more complicated explanation, as was broken down for us by our expert during Season 12. It involves the differences between macro and micro cells. I'm not going to get into all of that here, but for the purposes of this discussion, know that the expert in that episode also agreed that the first tower connected to on an incoming call, the initial cell face, does not provide accurate location data. See, what we're missing in Adnan's records are the full call detail reports. The only thing that we can see on his records are the initial tower and sector connections for each call. But what happens in reality is, once the network finds your phone with that initial connection, it then immediately switches you over to the closest tower, or the one with the strongest signal. So I'm going to give you an example of what I mean from our Season 12 case, so I hope this makes sense. In that case, the person in question received an incoming call. And based on the basic records, like what we have for Adnan, we see the initial connection was to the south-facing sector of a tower that was south of where he was supposed to be. 
So the state incorrectly determined that he was south of town when that call came in. But what wasn't produced at trial was the full call detail report. On that report, we see that the network found the phone using that southern tower, but then immediately switched to a tower much further north and east, which happens to be in the area that the suspect said he was at the time. So to say that you can't use incoming calls for location isn't entirely accurate. You can, but you can't if you're only using the original connecting tower and sector. You have to see what happened throughout the duration of the call to fully understand where the person was when they received the call. In the instance that I'm discussing here, the initial connection was made on a macro sector. Most towers have one of these. It's designed to have a massive coverage area. You can connect to it from miles and miles away, even from behind it. It's designed that way because it's used to locate the phones. Then once the phone is found, the system switches it over to the proper tower, the one that actually is designed to cover the area that they're in. That's going pretty deep into the weeds, and really it's just scratching the surface. But suffice it to say that the so-called Leakin Park pings do not in any way prove that Adnan was in Leakin Park at 709 and 716. And to that point, we have a second example in this episode of Brett and Alice working backwards from their own conclusions when they look at the evidence just like they did with Juwan's affidavit. So in this instance, the question is, do those two calls prove that Adnan was in Leakin Park between 709 and 716? And the reason that we need to know that is because we're trying to determine if we can believe Jay when he says that's where they were at that exact time. So the entire exercise is meant to figure out if Hayes' body was being buried in Leakin Park in the 7 o'clock hour. But in this episode, Brett and Alice mentioned that one of the experts that testified in the PCR hearing that for incoming calls, the location could actually be closer to the location of the caller and not the person receiving the call. And their take is, if that's the case, then it makes Adnan look even more guilty. I'll pause for a minute for you to try to wrap your brain around that. So what they do is they view that information through the lens of their predetermined conclusion. They assume that we know that Hay was being buried in Lincoln Park at 709, and therefore if the call came from someone else in Lincoln Park while Hay was being buried, then that's even worse for Adnan. And it's genuinely shocking to me that these two are prosecuting actual real cases in court. So let me just point out the obvious. First of all, like I said, the entire point is to figure out if Hay was being buried at that time. So it's asinine to just assume that's true while you're looking at this evidence. Secondly, according to their star witness, it was Jen who was making that call. So aside from the utter absurdity of the entire conversation, in what world does Jen calling Adnan's phone while she is in Leakin Park during Hay's burial? Make Adnan guilty. So, if you're trying to use the expert testimony and still land on a guilty Adnan, it would go something like this. Again, we're working on the premise that the location on that call is actually the location of the caller. And again, Brett and Alice say that would make Adnan look even more guilty. So, this is what that would look like. We know that Hay was being buried in Lincoln Park at 7.09 p.m. because Jay said she was. So we start with that. But now these two geniuses suggest that it was actually Bilal, just because Bilal, I guess, 
who made the 709 call to Adnan's phone. So it was Bilal who was burying the body. And in order to get there, we now have to say that both Jay and Jen are lying when they say that Jen was the one calling at 709. And we have to disregard Jay's entire story about Adnan dragging the body into the woods, him waiting in the car, then him going back to the body with Adnan and helping dig the hole, the blue jacket, the puking, the smoking the cigarette on the log. All of that has to go away. Jay lied about all of that. Because neither him nor Adnan were actually there. Bilal buried the body and he called Adnan while he was doing it. And we know that because while we don't believe a single word Jay says about the burial, and the only way that we get to the burial happening at 709 is because Jay remembers Jen calling during it, but now it wasn't Jen calling at all, but we know it was Bilal because the caller was burying the body at 709 when they called Adnan. And I, I wish that I was making this up. Sadly, I'm not. And remember back a couple of months ago when I said eventually, once all the evidence proves that Adnan is innocent, what we'll end up with is a new narrative that disregards Jay's story completely. Well, there you go. We got it. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Just because this is such a short episode, I'm going to take a few minutes at the close here to remind you about why the entire discussion about the Leakin Park pings is a complete waste of time. First, you can't use those calls for location, period. Second, the Leakin Park Tower covers a lot more than just Leakin Park. For example, the Edmondson Avenue Strip and Patrick's House, just to name a few of the places it covers. But most importantly is the timing. It is impossible for Jay's story to be true. Literally impossible. On a macro scale, Jay says that he didn't leave Christie's house on the south side of town until after the call from Adcock, which ended at 6.29 p.m. From there, they have to drive to Jay's house on the west side. They argue, get shovels, then drive to the east side to get the body and car, then drive around and find a place to bury the body. They eventually land on Leakin Park. Jay waits in the car for 15 to 30 minutes while Adnan drags the body into the woods. Then he comes back out, finds Jay, they argue again, then they walk back to the burial site, then begin digging the hole when the call from Jen comes in at 7.09. That's 40 minutes for about two hours worth of movements. But the guilty side will just say, yeah, but you can't believe Jay, you know, except for when it's convenient to believe Jay. So let's go down to a more micro scale. We'll limit things to the basic story. After leaving Christie's to get the shovels, Jay and Adnan then are going to go get Hay's car, go to Leakin Park, and bury the body. Forget everything else he said about the arguments, driving around to find a spot. Let's just take the basics and assume that Jay and Adnan were extremely efficient. Now let's look at the call log. 
At 6.59 p.m., Adnan calls his friend Yasser from the phone. Weird that he made that call on the way to bury a body, but hey, let's not let logic get in the way of a good story. But we know that the phone called Yasser at 6.59. And then we know that at 7 o'clock, Jay calls Jen's pager. So here we have an anchor. The phone calls someone only Adnan knows at 6.59, and someone only Jay knows at 7 o'clock. So they're still together at this point. They have not gotten Hayes' car yet. They're still in the same car. And both of those outgoing calls ping the Woodlawn Tower and Sector. So again, at this point, they're both still in the same car together, and they're somewhere in the area of Woodlawn High School. That call to Jen's pager ends at 7.01 p.m. So now the clock is ticking. They're up around Woodlawn at 7.01, and now they have eight minutes to drive to the park and ride to get Hayes' car with her body in the trunk. From Woodlawn, that's about an 11-minute drive. So I don't think we need to go much further than that. In order for the 709 call to be Jen calling while Adnan and Jay are in the middle of burying Hayes' body in Lincoln Park, they would have to drive from Woodlawn to the park and ride, Adnan get into Hayes' car, then drive to Lincoln Park, then drag Hayes' body 120 feet into the woods, and then be digging when the call came in. And they would have to do all of that in eight minutes. It's more than 15 minutes just of driving if that's all they did. I am not in any way exaggerating when I say that the so-called Leakin Park pings are meaningless. And it is 100% impossible for those calls to have come in during the burial. Impossible. Which leads me to my final thoughts about these last couple of episodes. If you're someone that believes that Brett and Alice had good intentions in creating this series, consider what they're spending their time on. The state had one thing, one piece of evidence to even suggest that Adnan is guilty. And that's Jay's story. Jay's story is the biggest, most critical piece of evidence in this entire case. And that's why the detectives spent so many hours, so much time, going back to him so many times, trying to get a timeline to work. Because without Jay, there is no case. And how much time is actually devoted to the details of Jay's story in their series? Very, very little. They talk about it, but those conversations always just veer off into a side, drawing your focus elsewhere. How many times throughout this series have we heard the details in his story don't matter? There's no point in trying to figure out Jay's timeline. And in the end, this most critical element of the case is chalked up to, well, there's a basic story there. But we've now spent the last two episodes putting a microscope on a cell phone ping that has been discredited in court, deemed by a judge to have been so prejudicial that he vacated the conviction based on it, and without question is proven that it cannot possibly have been a call that came in during the burial. Hours of the series have been devoted to these two irrelevant calls. But for Jay's narrative, we're told not to focus on the details and just accept that there is a basic story. And then we have Asia McLean. Three episodes out of 12. In 25% of the episodes we've heard, Brett and Alice deep dive into Asia. 
even though they themselves have said that Asia is irrelevant. She alibis Adnan for a time that doesn't really alibi him. But they go on and on and on about her and her letters and her affidavits and her testimony. In this episode, they even aim to discredit Juwan in his affidavit. So much time on an element of the case that doesn't matter. But what's Adnan's real alibi? Track practice. Two coaches. Only eight players for them to keep track of. And they never once even mention in 12 episodes that Coach Sai said Adnan was on time for track practice. They don't debate it. They don't argue it. They just never mention it. They won't even admit to you that he said it. They never mention that there were only eight people on the team. Instead, they tell you that it would be easy for Adnan to slip in late. No one would pay attention to him because all the Muslim kids on the team weren't running during Ramadan anyway. Plus, he wasn't one of the stars on the team. It's all misdirection. Smoke and mirrors. Two coaches, eight players, and Adnan was the only Muslim student on the team. That's the truth. If you've made it this far and you're wondering why I'm so angry about what they have done here, it's because to me, their intentional deception is very obvious. This entire series is nothing but sleight of hand. They're trying to make you look at their left hand while they're pocketing the coin with the right. And I'm going to leave it at that. I want to thank you all for listening. I love you all and appreciate your support more than you'll ever know. For those of you listening to this in real time on Patreon, remember that there won't be an episode next week on Christmas Eve. I'll be back in two weeks with the one that I know a lot of you have been waiting for. We're finally going to be talking about some big issues like lividity and alternate suspects. That's next time on Reply Brief. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com designed, created, manages, and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kay Wood-Yomnick, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It doesn't cost you a penny, and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible. 
If you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod, and I can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.